0: All right, our text this morning is from uh, Selected Verses in Esther 1, which you can find on page 410. Uh, there are Bibles placed in the chairs in front of you, so if you all need those, they're available. And while you're getting there, you can take some notes today because we're going to have some very strong contenders for future baby names in this passage. And <laughs> now, in the days of As You Hear Us, the Azuhiris who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Azurheiris sat on his, on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King us, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Azuhiras and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. You may
1: be seated. Thank you, Brandon. Mastery of those names, love it, thank you. Um, well, I am Ransom Kent, the pastor here, and we are starting a brand new series in Esther this morning. Um, I'm always jazzed when we're starting a new series, something about it just feels fresh and new, and so I'm excited to uh, be in the book of Esther for the next couple months with you all. Um, a couple of things, let's just, as a general introduction to the whole book of Esther, probably the most striking uh, trivia about Esther is that the name of God does not appear one time in the book of Esther, not once. God's name is not even mentioned. Um... Now, that fact remaining, I believe, as I've been studying Esther and getting ready for this series, we have before us one of the most relevant books to our personal walk with Christ uh, that, that we need right now. We need this book. We need the message that it has. And so throughout this series, here's my hope. Here's the general trajectory of where we're going. Uh, As we begin with the first couple of sermons, my hope is that we'll be confronted with areas of our life maybe that need to be deconstructed in a sense. Um, Maybe it's uh, a bad assumption about how God works. Maybe it's bad theology. Maybe it's uh, just uh, a bad way of thinking about how things work, a, a, a wrong perspective Uh, And as we're confronted by that, I hope that the the next phase of the series will help us rebuild those areas of our lives in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. Uh, And then finally, my hope is that we'll wrap this series up and, in a sense, maybe even uh, coat all those new areas of our lives with hope, a hope that is worthy of hoping, uh, a hope in Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the direction we're heading. Uh, a little bit of historical background here. Uh, we have a book here that's about the story of a young Jewish woman who lives in Persia who becomes the queen of Persia. That's the story of Esther. Um, it's In a technical sense, this book has been written uh, to, to explain why the Jews were to cel- celebrate a festival called Purim, P-U-R-I-M, Purim. Uh, Israel had, of course, been exiled twice now. Once uh, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, had been brought to Assyria, but now Babylon, Persia, the Medes had overtaken that world power. They were now the the dominating power in the world. And Judah and Israel now were part of that vast kingdom. And so that's why we have uh, this story of a young Jewish girl living in the citadel in the capital of Persia. Um, This is an interesting little tidbit. Uh, Esther is a comedy Esther's satire. Esther um, is about uh, this, this powerful kingdom. You have, as you hear us, or this is actually Xerxes, the first here in this book, the probably the most powerful man that's ever existed to this point in all of history. And why is it funny? Because he has no power, really. He has no power. And so every time the most powerful people are on the page, Every time they're on the page, we're seeing this, that they're pawns at best. They're pawns at best. And so even without God's name being mentioned on purpose, even without God being at the forefront of the story, who's pulling the strings? Who is executing his plan? Who is in charge? God, the God of the Jews, and so every time you see a, 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 a person of power, earthly power on the page, you can read it with sarcasm. That's what I like to hear. Um, so Xerxes, Babylon, the Persian uh, leaders, they're all exposed in this book, and they're exposed the most powerful and prominent people and being nothing more than parts of one who's more powerful's plan. And so as we read, uh, we're allowed to laugh a little bit at these folks. We're meant to. Um, now... Just as a side note, being part of God's plan is not an offensive thing. It's actually a privilege. But to those who think they control their lives, being part of God's plan, being a piece of his plan is quite offensive. And so we can see why it would bother them so much. But this is where we connect with this book of Esther. Even though God's name is not mentioned one time, Jesus Christ and his Gospels glaring from the pages. And I, and I my, the excitement I get in a series like this is to draw that out, to show us and see where Jesus is. And so even though these chaps, these powerful guys, do not recognize God, even though His name doesn't appear on the page, he is still in charge. Even when we as Christians don't see God working overtly in our lives, guess what? He's in charge. He's working. Even though the world out there does not recognize his name or give him place in their lives, it doesn't make him less so God. God doesn't need the title. God doesn't need the facade of power to be powerful. God doesn't need to be recognized to be God. He just is. He just is. God rules even when his name is not mentioned. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in to Esther 1 and see where our journey begins for the next few weeks. Lord, thank you so much for your Old Testament. Uh, We've been in the New Testament for quite some time. Thank you for these stories, these historical events that teach us so much about who you are. And so, Lord, I pray a special blessing over these next few weeks that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open my mouth, Lord, make us susceptible to your truth. Change us in our hearts. Lord, may we be confronted by the things that need to confront us in our lives. May we rebuild in those areas by the power of the Spirit, faithfulness. And may we, in the end, have a great hope for your plan for your people. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We begin, Esther, uh, with just another day in Babylon. Xerxes here in verses 1 through 4 is flexing. He's flexing. All right, he, we see in verses one through two just how powerful he is. Now in the days of As You Hear Us, the As You Hear Us who reigned from India to Ethiopia, Opia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in suits of the citadel. So you see he has this massive, massive kingdom. It's giant. But that's not enough. He wants to show off his wealth. There ain't no party like an As You Hear Us slash Xerxes, the first party. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. Think about this. Think about the size of his kingdom and all the officials that he has. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a 180-day party, a half year of partying. And it says later in the passage, the one rule of this party is there is no compulsion. Okay, think about this. This is, this is an intense, ongoing half year of indulgence. And that's probably an understatement. And so we have here this king, this most powerful man in the world, flexing his wealth, flexing his power, and then we run into verse 10, and we have a rebellious act. Now, just as a a disclaimer, we should not look at the marriage between Vashti and Xerxes as a model for marriage. So we're not going to get a lot of marriage teaching from this passage They didn't have a marriage of love. Vashti, if anything, at best, was his greatest subject. This is a thing about a king's power. This is not about disrespect of a husband and wife. This is not about uh, the marital relationship. This is nothing like a marriage that we know. And so what we have here is not um, Vashti putting her foot down and saying, enough is enough. No, we have a king who gives a direct command and one of his subjects disobeys it. That's what we have. Look at verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, I think we all know what that means, he commanded me human, that's a great name, uh, Biztha, Harbona, I like to think of the next two as twins for some reason, uh, Bigtha and Ag- Abagtha, there's no reason that you can't think that, I just think that's funny, um, and Zethar, and of course, our homeboy, Karkis, uh, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, what did he do? Bring Queen Vashti before me with her royal crown, show, in order what? To show the peoples and princes her beauty. She was lovely to look at. This is another flex. This is not look at how great our relationship is. This is look at something else I've conquered and that I own. And what happens? Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Again, we're not dealing with a marital spat. This is a command of the king and a subject who is saying no thanks. Delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So we're not dealing with, again, uh, a dysfunctional marriage. We're dealing with a king, the most powerful man in the world, who cannot get his most visible subject to do something he's asked. That's what we're dealing with. It's a joke. It's a joke. We, it's satire. He's not actually that powerful, as we can see. And so then we come to our second joke. And it's not me, human, or carcass. It's, it's the... Uh, the advice that is given to him and the panic that ensues. So they're partying. They're partying hard. And, and all of a sudden, Vashti says no. And it's almost as if the party stops for a group of people because they've got a problem they've got to solve. And so we didn't read this this morning, but verses 16 and 17, a new character named Mimukan, of course, um, has some advice for the king. And here's where it starts. Verse 16. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of king, as you hear us. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. You can read in here a big gulp, okay? Since they will say, king, as you hear us, commanded queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. These men, we should laugh at their insecurity. Will my wife do the same? This is what's happening. The patriarchy is crumbling before our eyes. The the, the power that they think they have, they are worried that they're going to lose it. And then we get verses 18 through 20. So he says, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say to the same, to all the king's officials, there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. In verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. If you look at the Hebrew here, uh, what Mimukan is saying is listen, bro, you got to get this on lockdown. We got to get this, we got to stop the bleeding. This is a really bad situation for us and our homes with our wives. And so, because the king's wife disobeyed, because they were afraid of what that would mean for all the other marriages or arrangements of marriage in the kingdom, they give a solution. And that solution was that he make a law, that the king make a law. And I love this. Uh, there's Khan will come in, I think, next week a little bit, but um, he's, he's smart. What he's asking the king to do is make a law for everyone else to do what he could not. Think about this. Look at verses 21 and 22. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Meemucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, listen what the law is, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The law was that every man in the kingdom do what King Xerxes could not do himself. Do you see the irony of it? It's a little funny. I know you're not laughing, but it's funny. The, the most powerful man in the world can't get the, the most uh, visual subject to do what he says, so he tells everyone in his insecurity, you all need to do this. You need to keep your houses in order, as I could not. The most powerful man in the world does not even have the power to do what he's telling everyone else to do in his own household. Now, this is not just a joke. It's not just satire. What's happening here, and we've got to pause, is God is setting the stage. This is not, again, just a, a dysfunctional marriage or a spat between a man and a wife. God is setting the stage for Esther to become queen. We'll see how this plays out as the story goes on. But God is working towards saving his people through this, this spat, through this disagreement, through this dis obedience. Vashti's behavior triggers the king to make a change on who his queen is. And God has plans for that. So we can see how God worked behind the scenes in Esther 1. Uh, Let me draw your attention to another story from the Old Testament of God saving his people. And I want you to notice the differences between what God's doing here and what God did there. Uh, There was another time In Old Testament history, where the people of Israel were exiled, sort of. They were slaves in Egypt, okay? This is before, really, they were the Israelites, but they were slaves in Egypt. Abraham and his offspring had proliferated there, and now they were in enslavement, and God wanted to save his people. So, how did he do it? He did it loudly. He sent Moses, who said, The Lord God of Israel says, and he said very clearly, Let my people go. There was no behind the scenes there. And in fact, when Pharaoh refused, what did he do? He brought snakes and blood and fire and bugs and frogs and death to, to make his point, to make himself known. And so in very literal ways, God split the sky open loudly, boisterously to save his people. God split literally the sea in half to save his people. There was no avoiding who was in charge, who was doing what he does. Now God works that way at times. And if you look at the Bible, you look at the narrative of the Bible, God generally works th- those ways at the at the peaks of his covenant. So he worked that way with Adam and Eve and with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus. He worked that way with them. He split the sky open. But how does God most of the time in our day and age work in our lives? How does he work? He works through the mundane. You see, God is using the private life of this monarch. He didn't have to ask his wife to come and do a fashion show. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to want to flex that muscle, but he did. He's using the private life, the inner desires of a monarch, to make way for his plan of salvation. He doesn't need to split the sky open. He's working through King Xerxes. But in our lives, it's very similar to this. God works in the day-to-day. God works in the day-to-day, the mundane stuff. Think about it this way. God works at your job. He doesn't have a cubicle, you know what I mean? Hey, God, what's up? Um, He works at our job. He works when our kids are being impossible. That's painful to hear. He works in a traffic jam. He works in a traffic jam. He works in the the smallest things. He works through friendship and romance. He works through marriage and singleness. God is working in every little mundane detail of our lives. And so I think as we come to an application, this first application is more corrective. This is where we begin to butt up against the truth of who God is and how he works in our lives. Do we expect, do we expect God to split the skies open in some sense in our lives for our stuff? Do we expect him to work and and holler down, ransom, here's what I want you to do, and here's the special place you have in this life. Here's how you're going to be unique if you, don't, if you doubt that people want to live unique lives, look at social media. When's the last time you read a post where someone said, I stubbed my toe today, and that was the end of it? Nobody does that. It's all with pomp and circumstance. Why? We want to be unique. We want to stand out in some way in all of our lives. And so we have to have this honest conversation with ourselves at this point as we get to this truth that God works the mundane, not always declaring his name, not always bringing frogs and blood and fire and death. Do we expect to lead an exceptional life? Do we expect that? Another question might be when we ask God in our lives, hey, what's next? Do we expect him to have this audible or at least special message just for me? In our lives, in the church age, God works through the mundane. God works through the mundane. The most powerful being in the world who has all of history in his hand, who can split the sky open, who can bring blood and snakes and all those things, who can do that, he is working in your life in my life in the everyday stuff. Now, that might at first glance seem discouraging, but it also might be the best news I've heard in this year so far that the most powerful being in the world is in the mundane details of my life. In the bad, in the good, in the easy, in the hard, in the regular, the irregular, in the expected, the unexpected, God is working out his plan through my life. His plan. So there's bad news and there's good news. There's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is... We really can't be people of power. That's not a thing. (laughs) Now, some of us in this earthly life may have title or position, but I want to tell you now, as we look at Xerxes, who is much more powerful than any of us here, that's actually just a facade. There's nothing you can actually do to control the things that matter. There's nothing. We don't have power. We don't have the ability to have power. We can't control our lives in those significant ways. Our life, our will, is tethered to God's power, God's plan, God's will. It's tethered to it. It's part of it. Now, again, to those who believe that they can control or that they have power, that can be offensive. How dare you, sir? But there's good news in this. If we're looking to Jesus Christ, if we understand who God is, and we see what he's doing, and we know that his plan is always successful, this idea that we can't really have power, that we can't control our lives, is actually wonderful, beautiful news. It's beautiful news because we don't have to wait for God to split the skies open for us. You realize we don't have to wait for it? He already did it. At the cross of Jesus Christ, think about this. At the cross of Jesus Christ, this bloody spectacle... The sacrifice of our Savior. It was a miracle, undeniable rescue for who? You and for me. He didn't do it just to make his own name. He did that thing for you and for me to include us in his plan. We don't have to wait for God to give us a message, a special message for us. We don't have to wait for God to to make our lives special. He did it at the cross through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so because of that truth, because we know who Jesus is, we know what he has done, we know why he did it, we don't have to control our lives. We don't have to get into the minutia and and tweak every little thing and turn every little dial to get the outcomes we want. We have a, a, a leader, a hero, as we talked about with the kids. And so because of who Jesus is, what he has done, we get to be pawns. (laughs) We get to be a part of his plan. It's not offensive. It's a wonderful blessing and privilege. We get to serve the one who has real power every day. And so on the positive end of application, today, tomorrow, this week, it's going to be a challenge. I think it's a challenge for me. I get caught up in the details of my life, whether they're good or bad or enjoyable or not or comfortable or uncomfortable. But as we experience our day, as we go through work, as our kids are being impossible, as we're stuck in traffic, as we're looking at all these mundane little details of our life, it'd be worth our time to start asking the question, how is God working through that? Because he is. Whether you recognize it or not, whether he's declaring it from the skies or not, God is working in the mundane in our lives. I think the Lord's Supper is a great visual of this tension. When I was eight years old, I grew up, I grew up in an independent Baptist church in New England, and um, I got baptized when I was eight but it wasn't because I had an epiphany, okay? Well, I did, but it wasn't the kind you think. Uh, I didn't get baptized because I I really wanted to declare to the the church that Jesus was my Lord and Savior. I got tired of not getting snack with everybody else, okay? I wanted crackers, and I wanted juice. That's what I wanted. And so I said, Mom, what do I got to do? She says, you got to talk to the pastor. So he asked me questions I knew the answers to. I answered them, got baptized, bam, crackers and juice. Victory, okay? Listen, in my eight-year-old perspective... I was looking at the bread or the cracker as just a bread or a cracker. I was looking at the wine and the juice as this cool, clear cup you get to drink out of. So, yes, there is an earthly, nonchalant, mundane element to the Lord's Supper. We're using everyday ingredients for this sacrament. But what is God doing through everyday ingredients? He's declaring to us remember what happened through a, a little bit of, I don't even know a recipe for bread, like flour, sugar, water, egg, I don't know, whatever that is, Whatever is in bread, okay? Um, I eat it, I don't make it, okay? Um, whatever's in bread, he's saying, remember how the body of Christ was broken, broken on the cross for you. And through a, a little bit of wine or juice, whatever you prefer, he's saying, remember the blood that was spilt for you. And so this morning, as we do this mundane thing of eating a little piece of bread and drinking this little piece of liquid, we are, we are participating in God's eternal plan for us, which is what? Our salvation. Our salvation. And so, this morning, if you are one of those who need that salvation, if you are someone who knows, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. And the only way for me to be saved from that Awful enemy is the sacrifice, the life, the resurrection, the ascension, the advocacy of Jesus Christ. If you know that, if you've declared it, you've been baptized this morning, the, the scriptures say you're invited with open arms to participate in this thing that is eternally significant through these insignificant elements. If you don't believe those things, if you don't believe that, that you're a sinner, Or you have a sin in your life and you're just like, nah, I like it too much. I want to keep it. Or you don't believe that Jesus could save you or does save you. The scriptures make it clear. It's not the right to participate. And so I'd encourage you, our session encourages you to evaluate where you're at with those things and to make a decision from there. Let's just take a, a quick moment of silence. Let's pray to ourselves. Let's put ourselves in the mindset of sorrow and joy mingled together that comes with the Lord's Supper and then I'll gather us together through a um, a prayer of blessing. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I personally want to thank you that you are bigger than an eight-year-old's bad attitude. You're bigger than misunderstanding. You're bigger than shallow decisions made from a sinful heart. You are much bigger than all those things. Your love is unconditional. Lord, all of us in some way misunderstand what we're about to do, but all of us in some way this morning have a Savior or we don't. And so I pray, Lord, that those of us that have Jesus Christ as our Savior through, through, uh, by grace, through faith, that we would come with confidence to this mundane dinner with eternal significance. I pray, Lord, that this time together as a family, eating and drinking, through the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus Christ would begin a time in our lives where we are reorienting ourselves to see how you work in our lives for your plan. And I pray, Lord, that the sorrow of our sin would be heavy, but the joy of your salvation would be a burden lifter. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.